morning, everyone. We are talking about joy this morning as we work our way towards Christmas. It's just a couple of more Sundays and then Christmas Eve. So that's pretty exciting stuff. We have Christmas Eve services. There's two of them. One's at 4 and one's at 5.30 on Christmas Eve. So you want to make sure you plan accordingly. Um, we're talking about joy today. And I want to give you a classic passage out of the book of James and on uh, joy. And it's always been a bit of a, a, a difficult passage for us when we talk about joy. So I'm going to give that to you up front. And so if you have your iPad or phone or whatever, or your Bible, if you brought a Bible with you, um, you might want to look it up, uh, James chapter 1. And we'll be looking up a couple other verses as well. Uh, or you can use that new Lakeland phone app that has the Bible on there. So you can do that too. So here it is, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Joy, I think joy is an elusive emotion. It's hard to to manufacture joy. I mean... How do you and I then find and experience joy? And at Christmas time, joy is supposed to be found everywhere. It's supposed to be in abundance. It's a joyous time. We have all sorts of Christmas carols about joy. And so it's supposed to be a joyous time. It's right there in the story, and that's why it's so prevalent at Christmas time. Elizabeth, Elizabeth is with child about six months before Mary's with child. Their relatives, uh, Mary, Elizabeth is having John, who will grow up to be John the Baptist. Jesus is John's cousin, and when Mary walks into the room, the baby inside of Elizabeth's womb leaps. John leaps out of joy. And then uh, there's also then Mary herself. She even sings a song because she's so joyous. She begins to sing right there. It's right there in Luke chapter 1. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. A song of joy. And then at Jesus' birth, that very first Christmas, heaven can't help itself. The shepherds are in there uh, in the, at, watching their flocks by night, and they are greeted by the angel of the Lord who says, Do not be afraid. See, for I am bringing you gr- good news of great what? Great joy. And then all of heaven just busts open because they can't help it. Joy's just spilling out of heaven over a bunch of lonely shepherds. So Christmas is full of joy. And for some reason... Sometimes we miss out on joy at Christmas time. So Christmas time is this joyous time. And how do we get it? How do we get joy? I'm going to tell you up front, just so you kind of get the connection. And you may want to pencil this around on the border of your program, your hand out there or whatever. But there's a deep connection between gratitude and joy. So I would always draw like the word, write the word gratitude and then draw an arrow towards joy. <clears throat> gratitude leads to joy. So you have to have great gratitude if you want to have great joy. This is part of the process, and we're going to add to that, by the way. Gratitude, joy. There's a great great connection there. I'll also tell you up front that I think all too often what's going on these days in prosperous, affluent times in America uh, is that there's this strange sense that I have that somehow, even though we have most everything that we want in this life these days, it seems like, somehow we feel strangely in suburbia joyless, joy anemic, 
are joy deprived. There's something strange that I guess sociologists could study about contentment in suburbia, where we have everything we want, and for some reason, we don't seem to be all that content. We're joy deprived. And somehow what happens then in our seeking, in our wishing to want to have joy is that we go on an endless buzzy search for the next entertainment, some next, next moment that will make us happy or experience some moment of pleasure. And so that's why we have an entire entertainment industry built around us. Entertainment comes with an affluent society, Yes. But instead of feeling this all the time, we seem to be gripped more by fear, by terrorism, or by those who don't look like us or behave like us or speak like us. And then the worst thing happens, we become entitled. We become entitled. We think we deserve some, something. Entitlement means we feel like we deserve something, that we should get some free stuff, that somehow the government, the businesses, the churches, the charities, the schools are all supposed to provide us free stuff, that somehow we become entitled thinking like somebody owes us something. Life just goes like that. Entitlement means that we're not grateful, and therefore we don't smile very much. We don't have very much joy. So here you have it. You have the joy, uh, uh, the gratitude leading to the joy. But before that, then, you have this problem where it's cutting it in half because of entitlement. I kind of got an algebra problem going on up here, don't I? So, you know, you got joy. and I mean, you have gratitude leading to joy. And then it's divided by entitlement, chopping it in pieces. Here's a quick picture of what entitlement looks like. It's from one of my favorite authors from years ago, Brennan Manning. And he's talking about it as well. Oh, yeah, I need that. Thank you. So, Brenda Manning, just a second. Um, Classic case, entitlement. Classic case, man in restaurant orders crab meat salad. Mistakenly, waiter brings shrimp salad. Livid, angry man roars, where the hell's my crab meat salad? Somehow, life owes him a crab meat salad. Is that you? Is that me? We lack a certain depth. And I believe joy is a very, very, very deep emotion. Joy is a pure life emotion. Joy is what you feel at the birth of a baby. Joy is what you feel when you say, I do, because it's the only two words that you could utter to describe what's going on. Even at the birth of the baby, all people can ever say is like, look at the baby. Oh, look at the baby. What else are you going to say? Everybody's full of joy. Just look at the baby. That's all you need to know. Look at it. Joy is what you feel when you, when you watch a sunset in the desert or you watch a sunrise at the ocean. And you wish all of your friends were there and all your family was there except for that one. And then you wish everybody was there <laughs> so they could experience. And then because you can't get everyone to experience, you, you take a picture of it on a very, very small camera. And then you send it out over the world. And then you tell everybody in the comments like, ah, well, it doesn't really, yeah, you should have been here. That's joy. It's indescribable. You just have to have been there. Now, happiness is not the same as joy. Psychologists like to talk about happiness quotients. They rarely talk about joy. The Bible talks about joy, not so much happiness, because happiness is a little bit more momentary. It's not as deep. I'm making up definitions here. It's not as deep. So you have happiness when you get a new pair of shoes or, or perhaps when you see a funny comedian on television or go somewhere or something like that. That's happiness. You feel happy. That's great. 
But joy is something deeper. Joy is something more like music. There's one more thing about joy we have to know. Joy can be experienced, as James says, in the worst of trials and in the worst of tribulations and at the worst times in life. And that's why it's different than happiness because you can also be in the worst problems in life and still experience a joy. And that's why the book of James first says, consider it nothing but all kinds of joy when you experience very difficult times. Consider it joy when you experience trials and hardship. Because I've seen Christians in Haiti years ago who are living on less than $2 a day who don't know if they're going to eat that day and I go to church with them on Sunday and they're singing as loud as they can, praising God Almighty. An entire hundreds and hundreds of people full of joy living in the worst, most despicable circumstances. I've been worshiping with a, with, with a couple of dozen people in China, hidden away in an apartment somewhere in a big city where the police are waiting to arrest them if they found out what they're doing. And these Christians in China are singing with abandonment at the top of their voices loud enough, I am quite sure, for the police to hear them down the block and in the street, and they don't care out of joy. I cared. But they didn't. Pure joy doesn't care about the law. Counterintuitive as it might seem, excellent source of joy is even at the hardest of times in life. And that's why I think most people experience joy, sometimes the deepest joy of their entire life, at the funeral of someone that they love dearly. I know it's counterintuitive and sounds strange, but deep joy is found at a funeral. And it must be because they realized in that one moment at the loss of the person, they realized how much joy that person brought into their life. And all of the loss comes together. And while they may not feel happy and they may be crying, they feel joy. Check this with yourself and see if it isn't true when you've lost something dear. Loss can bring a joy and so can trials. So joy is the, is the uh, fruit of gratitude and entitlement seems to cut it up. But let's just dig a little bit deeper because there's one more thing to add on to the gratitude that builds to the joy, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness is what leads to gratitude. Forgiveness leads to gratitude. Gratitude leads to joy. Don't do the entitlement part, which we're going to get to in just a second. So we're going to use the Gospel of John here to talk about forgiveness because this this Advent, we're working through the Gospel of John. It doesn't have a nice Christmas story like Matthew and Luke. There's no angels or, or mangers or anything like that. John starts off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He retells a creation story. But quickly into the story, we get caught up in Jesus's ministry in his life. And so we're going to go to John chapter 6. So if you have your Bible with you, you'll want to look that up. John chapter 6. I would highly encourage you to read the whole chapter. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And this is more telling about me than it is about Scripture because it is such a greasy chapter. It is this gross, weird little chapter about people. You're going to find out some deep insights about the human heart when you read John chapter 6. It's just that intriguing, so I really highly encourage you to look it up right now and follow along. We're going to pick up on the middle of the thing, but here's what's going on in John chapter 6. The crowds are following Jesus, okay? He is healing the sick. This is He's a mature man. He's in his ministry. He's healing the sick, and the crowds are following Jesus, and they follow him outside of town now because they'd seen him healing people. And Jesus and the disciples 
have no idea how they're going to feed the people. You've heard the story, right? The feeding the 5,000. There's a boy who has five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus multiplies the food and 5,000 people get their fill with some left over. Okay, know the story, right? Well, guess what? Jesus now has thousands of people following him around looking for free bread. Imagine that. Not too hard to understand, but then it gets greasy. And this is the part that's on the screen. John chapter six, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, said to Jesus, Rabbi, when did you come here? And I say it with that inflection because it's like, oh, really? Well, how'd you guys all get there, bread people? And Jesus answered them, answers them, very truly, I tell you, he's just going to cut right to, to the chase here. Very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You just want the bread. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For it is on him that God the Father has set this seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? Listen closely here, folks. This is going to be good. Verse 29. Jesus answers them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Not a good enough answer. So they said to him, what sign are you going to give us so that we may see it and believe in you? What work are you performing? And just in case, Jesus, you don't understand what we're asking for, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. What are you going to do, Jesus? And then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It was, it is, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. We don't really care what this mumbo jumbo you're talking about coming down from heaven, all this stuff. Just give us the bread. Verse 35, and Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you realize they pretty quickly realize, so this means we ain't getting no bread. (laughs) The bread deal's done. I guess we shouldn't even ask for the two fish, huh? So it quickly goes downhill. The Pharisees jump in on the thing, the religious leaders. They start arguing with Jesus because he's saying he's the bread that's come down from heaven. Like somehow he's a gift from God. Just put that in there with I am God's son and all of that. Jesus pushes his luck even to the furthest point where he begins to say, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, he says there in that chapter. And they're like, what the? Eat your flesh and drink your blood like you're some sort of holy sacrament because they had that sort of thing going on back then. And he says, whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will live forever, verse 58. The crowds at this point leave Jesus, all those people following who were looking for the bread. The religious leaders disown him and begin to plot on like how we got to get rid of this guy because he's really going to mess up our culture and all our deals. We have the Roman Empire and all the rest of it. And even the next circle out from the 12 disciples, even those closest people around him, the next tier out, they leave him. It's just him and the 12. John is 21 chapters long, and by chapter 6, it has all gone to hell in a handbasket. 
Because you always think like when you're reading the Gospels, you're like, Jesus is so popular, what happened? Like, that's what happened. Right there. I'm the bread of life. Right here, it's the people I find most interesting. Here you have this great insight to, the, to how the human heart works, the human condition right here. Once they figured out that Jesus is not a bread and fish vending machine, Messiah, they leave. In a word, the people feel entitled. Here's this entitled word again. The people feel entitled to free bread from the Messiah. God, ought to, ought, God owes them something. God ought to be giving us bread like he did to, the, to the, our ancestors in the desert. They, where's this manna stuff, you know? It's about time, don't you think, after about, you know, a thousand years or so, we ought to be getting some free bread out of God? If you want to kill the joy of Christmas, then throw a whole bunch of entitlement all over the whole thing. You want to ruin Christmas? Have entitlement be there. Now, now everyone thinks these days, it seems like they're entitled to a long, gift, long list of gifts, like they're supposed to get everything they want. And everyone feels like they're entitled to receive whatever their wildest dreams conceive of in affluent suburban America. Like somehow somebody's being cheated if they don't get something. I remember my sister. My sister, when she was a teenager, she threw a sobbing hissy fit because my mother bought her the wrong shiny vinyl white go-go boots. I know I'm dating myself. Shiny white vinyl go-go boots. They were, she got them. They were the wrong ones. And she was sitting there sobbing next to the tree. I still have a vivid picture of her sitting there sobbing next to the tree. My Depression-era mother, I thought she was going to explode, which she did explode. I'm just trying to be nice about her. When we were kids, we were lucky to have shoes. You knew that was coming, right? Somehow my sister thought that she deserved white, shiny vinyl go-go boots. Not those, those. In comparison, a few years ago, Lori and I took a trip to Guatemala, and I handed a few cents worth of paper money to a little girl who was playing in the dirt by the side of the road. And she ran, and her mother came out of the house, and her sisters came out of the house, and they all stood there in front of this little shack that was all full of dirt. And they stared at the money, and their faces were so huge. And then they looked at us, and they stared at the money. They looked at us, and they stared at the money. They looked at us. I don't think, I think I realized at that moment, they had never seen paper money. And it was only a few pennies worth. Or at least they'd never had any in their hands. See, entitlement is a joy killer. What's Christmas like around your house? What's the level of entitlement for Christmas this year? How entitled does everyone feel? How much Christmas joy your family experiences is directly proportional to the amount of entitlement that's in the house. Lots of entitlement, low joy. Happiness, maybe, when you get the stuff. Shiny white go-go boots. You know, when our children were little, I kid you not, I think they were happier playing with the empty gift wrap paper tubes than they were with the Nerf guns that we got them. They're just as happy playing with the packaging and the boxes. Even the simplest things are precious to those who don't expect much. You want to have a joyous Christmas? Then don't expect very much. 
At this point, we reach this critical moment where we have to make these sort of decisions. And you're like, no magic wand is going to say, well, now suddenly don't expect much. What has to happen is now gets to a theological point that I'm going to load on you. So kind of hang with me here. Because what I'd, what I'd like to have happen is that you, your heart would be filled with gratitude. But there's a way to get to the gratitude building on this whole thing. Gratitude is the missing attitude that was with the crowd around Jesus, yes? Why did they lack gratitude? Because they had the wrong God. They had the wrong image of God. If you have the wrong image of God, you will lack gratitude. It's pretty simple. If you have a vending machine God, God owes you something. God shouldn't allow this to happen. How come I'm sick? How did I get this disease? How come you took away my mother? How come I didn't get my white go-go boots? God, if it's God's fault that all of this stuff, you will have a great diminishment about what's going on in life. You will not have gratitude in your life. I remember uh, listening to a pastor years ago who'd worked for years and years in the inner city. And he said the number one difference between people in the inner city is those who stay stuck in the inner city lack the proper traction of gratitude in their life, even though they don't have anything. So gratitude or a lack of gratitude and entitlement actually is an equal opportunity, you know, affliction. (laughs) You can feel entitled whether or not you're poor or whether you're rich. You get the wrong God, you mess up your faith. It's that simple. That's why James can say, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations. Because joy is right there found in the worst of times. If you can figure that out, you'll have the traction to understand gratitude. But just for a moment then, Stay with me here because we're going to go to the Lord's Prayer. We're going to lift out a piece that we said earlier. But we're going to do it out of Matthew's gospel, which uses debtors. Luke uses trespasses. And then we just kind of even the playing field by calling it sins. But here's this passage, okay? Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus teaches us to pray. And then the next thought is, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Give us our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, to forgive someone, everyone, to forgive someone, whatever they've done to you, you have to set the person free from the entitlement, the debt that they owe you. Yes? To forgive someone is to become free. Yes, you set them free from the debt they owe you, like they owe you money. You set them free, but you become free. You you become free when you forgive someone. So forgiveness then leads to gratitude because you set yourself free. You have to understand forgiveness, which means you have to have the right God, a God who forgives you, a God who forgives everyone who turns to him. To forgive is to be free. So if someone messed up your marriage or someone caused you to lose a job or borrowed money from you and didn't pay it back, that debt that they owe you is an entitlement that you deserve, right? Unfortunately, you have now become enslaved to the debt by your own choosing. Yes, it's totally true. They owe it to you. You choose and make a decision for your soul whether or not you want to remain uh, asking for the remission of the debt from them. That's your choice. It's not their responsibility. If they pay it back, great. But if they don't, who's going to set you free? 
To hold a grudge is to hope that someone will pay something off that they owe you. So see, I think it makes perfect sense that right there in that prayer from Jesus, give us today our daily bread. Oh, yes, and the other thing we need is to forgive others uh, as, as you've forgiven us. Get the right picture of God. I think there's a deep connection between that sort of thing. I believe Jesus is brilliant at this point in this prayer. I think the entire attitude of the Lord's prayer is this. Live lightly. Live lightly. Live one day at a time. As he taught elsewhere, each day has enough troubles of its own. Just live one day at a time. How many of us go to bed at night worrying, wake up in the morning worrying, and then worried about things that people owe to us and forgiveness and grudges and bitterness and all this sort of stuff, and it is eating us alive. This is the symbol. This loaf of bread right here I have in my hand. This is the symbol of the whole Lord's Prayer right here. There's a reason why when we take the Eucharist here in a little bit, when we take the communion, the Lord's table, why this is a symbol of participating in God. Because this symbol right here says, just one day at a time, live lightly. Forgive others. Don't hold things too tight. Have an open hand, not a tight fist. There's a major difference in people's lives who go around with a tight fist. They are entrapped. It's an open palm. Tonight, when you um, celebrate Advent, I'm proposing that you bake bread this afternoon. And and by this afternoon, I mean that you start at least by halftime. If you don't start your bread by halftime and get the yeast going and all that, you will be eating dessert bread, if not late night snack bread. It takes a long time. Bread is a spiritual practice, and the one who benefits is the one who makes it. And, and if you end up eating it all by yourself at 10 o'clock tonight, you'll be the only person receiving the benefit from it. But you too will be the person, while everyone's eating the bread, you, and you're the one who made it, you'll be thinking like, deep down inside your heart, you'll have a small joyous feeling that says like, I made that bread. It didn't turn out right, but I made it. It's kind of a cracker. Yay. So I'm proposing that you bake bread. It's the exercise of baking the bread that's the point of the exercise. The eating it, eh, it's fun too. You see, everyone, what you have to understand is that God's not a vending machine. You're not a vending machine, and other people are not a vending machine. And to hold a bitterness and to hold a grudge is not eating daily bread. That's trying to save the manna for the next day and the next day and hang on to it for the rest of your life. And it doesn't work that way. It rots. And it rots inside your soul. And that's the whole illustration on this whole thing. So I'd like to invite the uh, communion servers to come forward right now because we're going to move to the table where we do these very, very common symbols of bread and a cup that say, yeah, that's right. Just Just feed on Jesus in your heart. Feed on him in your soul. Realize that each day you can only eat enough bread for the the moment. That's the entire symbol. So that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup, he took the chalice. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Day after day after day, there is sustenance in the cup and in the food and in the bread you eat and in what you drink. And Jesus is true drink and true bread. He is the bread of life. Would you stand with me, please, as we proclaim the mystery of faith and take ourselves to this table. So let's do these prayers together. Therefore, we proclaim this mystery of faith. Everyone, Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. is a medical condition that um, is uh, a communication between two organs that shouldn't be there. In the case of what we do, it is an obstetric fistula that is formed um, when the baby gets stuck during delivery. And so it creates a hole between uh, the birth canal and the bladder or the birth canal and the bowel, and it creates uncontrollable leakage. In terms of the girls that we work with, um, it creates a lot of isolation. They're kept away from their families. Their husbands usually cast them aside. The baby dies. Um, So what do we do? We go in and we take doctors and nurses who will assist with surgeries to um, repair fistulas. We spend time with the girls before and after surgery, encourage them, hug them, teach them how to write their name, um, just uh, build up their self-esteem because they have been hurt for so long. I'm proud of the fact that Dignity Liberia is a volunteer-based organization. Um, I have 10 people on my Dignity board and we make decisions regarding what we, um, how we can help in Liberia, but there's all the other people on the outside that are donating their time, that are donating medical supplies, and that are donating their own funds to go with us and be a part of um, the healing that's going on in Liberia. When we were in Liberia, um, we were there specifically to see um, how the Liberian people have made it through the Ebola crisis and how we were still going to be able to continue with our mission. And it was amazing to see how we played a very strong part in the Ebola recovery effort. Um, Many of you probably remember that we sent a container of donated hospital beds and bassinets and IV poles, some medical equipment that we were going to use in our maternity nursing home. And when Ebola hit, the hospital that was storing them had no place to isolate the Ebola victims and they were able to build an isolation room and they used all of our beds and all of our IV poles. when I got there, the, the, the uh, 
hospital administrator apologized to me. Miss Kathy, I'm so sorry. We don't have any more beds for you. We used everything that you had for Ebola. And we knew at that point that that was God planning that. He knew that this was coming down and he made those beds there for them. And it was wonderful to be a part of that. What I want the people at Lakeland to know is that you are a part of this and how you contributed because your funds helped us to send a container with the beds, with the medical supplies. Um, we have sent probably four or five containers with Lakeland's help. And I had people coming up to me telling me, thank you, you sent food. Thank you. You sent medical supplies. Thank you. We needed that. So um, the beds, they were needed. They saved lives because they were able to separate the Ebola um, patients. The medical supplies, the hand sanitizer, things that we don't even think about, all of these things played a part. And um, the monies through Fearless directly contributed to that. Well, maybe you and I will find our way over there sometime and I'd go just for the music. I love that kind of stuff. Um, and we can go see for ourselves. So we want to say that's an update on Fearless. Fearless is a three-year or 36-month-long uh, financial challenge above and beyond our normal gifts and tithes around here. And it goes to things like this. So hundreds of thousands of dollars go out of here, out of $1.3 million that was raised, just simply given away uh, for causes just like Dignity Liberia. So we want to say thank you. But in light of what um, the teaching is today, let's not be too careful to take credit for ourselves and break our arm patting ourselves on the back because Moses did not give you the bread. It came from God, your Father. That's who gave the money, not us. And we all said, Amen. Yeah. And we'll end with the Northumbria Celtic blessing for Advent, the one that's in anticipation, waiting for Christ to come and waiting for that Christmas Eve and that Christmas day when our Lord and Savior, and it's short and it's succinct as most all the uh, Celtic sort of prayers are from over a thousand years ago. So you have your part and I have my part. Watch and pray, the Lord shall come. Those who are longing await his appearing. Watch, wait, and listen. Go in peace.